0: What if I told you that on Saturday at 11.32, Curry Hicks Sage started a tweet storm?
1: One of the great things about today was how clear it's become, just how much of an offline, in real life thing UMass Twitter has become. I got to chat with @sloves90_615, @fightmass, @mullinsd, @apumass, at Sloves90 underscore 615, at Fightmass, at MullinsD, at AP Chris P. Tucci at Ten Rings 16 years, at R. Sitchman, at D. Wallace PhD, at Intervisions 33. I saw Billy and Fightmask mixing it up in Sitch and Ten Rings and his dad, bantering as if they'd known each other for a decade, met Sloven for what felt like the hundredth time, when in truth it was the first. I suppose that the act of fans of a relatively small program meeting on Twitter and then sitting together at games isn't, on its face, terribly remarkable. but. Natty kept tweeting until 11:57. In an increasingly impersonal and constantly changing world, a world made that way in part by technologies, have actually expanded my capacity to engage in the world. The truth is that over so many years of this, you build relationships with people that, without even realizing it, fandom becomes a core aspect of who you are. So, DMing with a guy like at Joel Subtle, that you're at the hangar and that. You should come over and say hello, even though you've only met once before at Harvard last month. feels completely normal, even though it wouldn't in any other context. UMass fans on your tweets and make some noise for your podcaster. They never got over being 10 in 1996. Well, can you believe what's going on in the Atlantic 10 today? I remember when Penn State was in the Atlantic 10. (laughs) Okay, well, after that dynamic intro, we are back. This is episode eight of the still- unnamed umass basketball podcast my name is curry hicks sage coming to you live from new york city in boston cal aka andrew callagy aka andrew callagy for longtime listeners of the show <laughs> aka a callagy on twitter and in what's- dc our dynamic producer bennett carroll what's up fellas good to be back what's up sage how you doing you guys like the uh, you like the little sketch comedy bit I put together last night with my boy yeah. at the studio in Brooklyn? Shout out to Magic Hour Studios.
0: Magic Hour Studios is a hell of a name, for, yeah. For it a really studio, is. Uh, but yeah, that was phenomenal. Um, I saw, I heard it. Was it last night you posted it, or maybe I heard it this morning? But um, like a plus, I, I was dying the whole time
1: i hope people get it like i, I don't know if people yeah i don't know i mean it, well but. if you don't let's just break it down it's a 30 for 30 mock thing about my kind of uh over the top tweet storm after the georgia game uh and it, it uh, which was sort of a pay in to umass pay in p-a-e-a-n i think that's yeah pay and not pay in p-a-y-i-n, P-A-Y-I-N. But oh, wow! Uh, We're going SAT words Yeah, now. well, I mean, it's pain. In, I mean, whatever. So, um, <laughs> you know, sort of a tribute, if you will, an ode to the UMass Twitter world, where where I got a little sentimental and uh, maudlin. It was a little over the top as as uh, decent sports writing can be, but I had I had fun with it and I meant every word of it. But I also wanted to poke fun at myself a bit. So, I actually wanted to make it just a regular thirty for thirty. Like at the end, it would be like thirty for thirty presents a story about you know a fan who's whatever and then he was adamant about like adding the uh, the sounds of you know people cleaning up in a restaurant as I droned on which I thought was funny and he did all this oh. the work so
0: it might uh, be my favorite part of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean
1: it's that I think it's, so it's like if you good. get that if you get where he's going with that right away that is the funniest part but it's like yeah. you're sort of expecting the full 30 for 30 treatment and he just yeah. goes in a different direction which it's a little it's a little it's a little edgier which I like. Yeah, I loved it. I I loved it, Sage. I thought it was really, really well. Appreciate it. Well, we'll try to do more of those throughout the year. Anyway, um, speaking of thank yous, let's just real quickly give some shout outs to those who kept the show on the air this month. As you know, we have uh, some modest fees to pay to upload the program, and we asked for small contributions before we lock in uh, these dynamic deals with advertisers that are banging down the doors. Uh, shout out to UMass fan 33 throwing $5. I don't even want to say figures because I asked between one and five and some people actually went over that, but I really genuinely just want wanted between one and five. Um, also want to give some love to Kevin Glazer. Um, really appreciate your contribution. I think Kevin was up for the game this weekend, as was another contributor, the great R. Sitchman. Uh, who gave us a nice contribution and the final contribution to me, these came via the DMs and to my PayPal, was from, I'm looking right now because it's been a couple days, uh, the great TD Mass, Tom Massetti. Much appreciated on that donation, so I really appreciate it and uh, we will definitely thank whoever continues to contribute, throw me a DM or shoot uh, some money on Venmo to cal at andrew dash c-a-l-l-e-a excuse me c-a-l-l-a-g-y Cal, who are you (laughs) thinking this month i'm Um, thinking i'm thinking a good amount of people
0: here um jesse allen uh going towards the uh, maroon pants movement soundcloud which i thought was a um you know, a nice little caption there. Uh, Max Bitter with the uh, the classic two dollar and sixty nine cent nice uh, nice donation there. Nice from, from Max, aka Fight Mass. Uh, Zach Emery, uh, Tyler Komets. If I'm pronouncing your name wrong, I'm really sorry. This is another tough one. Uh, Mike Rao, I think R A U H R R A.
1: I've seen him on the tweets. I believe.
0: Yeah, Mike Rao. Brian Sullivan, Garrett Russell. Who hits me up a lot? Uh, hits us both up a lot. I think on Twitter, PJ Stevens, another um, big Stallworth, Twitter guy, former S- former
1: president of the Mullins Militia. Ooh, PJ what Stevens.
0: It, did not know that. Um, and then the final one is Matt Picard, uh, supporting the UMass podcast, is what he says. And so I thank all of you guys. Um, you know, it's 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 nice that you know you guys give back, and I uh, hope you enjoy what we do. And um, <laughs> we don't we don't
1: we we don't ask for a lot. But uh, it's it's, it's, <laughs> the it's sincerity, uh, it's, the sincerity in your tone is, is palpable. <laughs> in the words of in the words of John Rossi Oh
0: man, uh, but no, but honestly, it's like very much
1: appreciated. Um, Would you not know, be I mean, able to do the show. I mean, we literally we couldn't really upload without yeah. the modest thing we receive from the, the folks, and also it allows us to keep it, uh, you know, decidedly edgy because we're user user funded. You know what I mean, man? Yeah, um, like stern. <laughs> all right so let's get no yeah not not really so let's jump right into the georgia game and what a what a dynamic game it was first of all uh, i want to say thanks so much to all the people i got to meet at this one as uh you may have heard on the 30 for 30 sketch or seen in my tweet storm it was awesome meeting sloven and billy d mullins and all these guys that we banter with on twitter uh, 10 rings in 16 years our sitchman everybody in their maroon pants it was just uh a great day to be a UMass fan. There was 4,700 and change there, but I swear if you were there, it felt you know like 6,000, 6,500. The fans were really into it. The students were solid. The program did a great job getting people out there. It was just a really fun day to be a UMass fan. And the start to that basketball game, I mean, I cannot remember a more exciting opening eight minutes it what we went into the under 12 i believe up 24 7 after carl pierre hit that second three ball which really got the crowd you know brought the crowd to life some more and you know the reality is when you start a game that well and you're basically hitting everything you just feel like this is going to be one of those days. And lo and behold, you know, as much as Georgia sort of came back and cut the lead, we we gave ourselves such an edge with that opening to the game that it was, it was UMass's game to lose. And their defense was so solid throughout that we weren't going to lose it. And it was just such an encouraging day on, on so many fronts. And we'll, we'll jump into the specifics of the game in in a moment, but I, I just want to say, um, what a time to to be a UMass fan in terms of this season. I mean, I don't think anyone predicted that we'd win these last two games, and particularly not in the fashion that we did. And it's so great to see a team, frankly, getting a little lucky because they deserve it. I say lucky because if you recall the opening to this game against Georgia, I mean, it, it didn't even feel like we were playing well, and we were up 8 nothing first, like, Three possessions. CJ kind of like missed a dunk, got fouled, and then the ball caromed in for a three-point play. There was a off-balance three from Pipkins, sort of at the end of the shot clock, and you just kind of felt like, "Wow, this is going to be one of those days." And when you shoot sixty percent from three, and Carl Pierre is you know catching and shooting in transition, it almost doesn't matter what the opponent's doing. I mean, you're gonna you have a pretty good shot at winning the basketball game. And give the guys credit in the second half. You know, the officiating was really really dubious for a a bit there. And, you know, all of a sudden, three minutes in, they're in the bonus. Three or four minutes in, they're in the bonus. And our bigs have gone from having zero foul trouble to both having three. And there was was a stretch there where, you know, Kalea Turner-Morris was your center. Thank God for Chris Baldwin just burying some big shots and playing well on the other end because there was a moment where you thought that lead could get, you know, chipped away real quickly. You got it down to about 10, but UMass ultimately weathered the storm and hit some big shots down the stretch um, to to win the basketball game. was super encouraging, beat a strong SEC opponent. Mark Fox was irate after the game. The Georgia coach did not even show up for the post-game press conference and didn't bring his team either. Georgia went back to uh, Athens later that night and are currently, as we speak, on Tuesday evening when we're this playing a rivalry game against georgia tech so that's how that one wrapped up cal i know you didn't see it in its entirety you were at the wedding but do you have any thoughts on the game more broadly
0: yeah so so uh you 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 might have to carry me through this a little bit but yeah i was at a wedding on saturdays and i was you know diligently checking my phone um you know the ceremony started at five o'clock the game starts at three i'm like just Constantly refreshing, looking at Twitter, looking at my phone. It's so I, I so then I went I went back yesterday, tried to watch some of the game, you know, work gets in the way a little bit, but I did get to catch the first like five to ten minutes of the well, I should say like the first ten minutes of the first half. Do you like the energy that UMass came out with, especially on the defensive end, do you think that surprised Georgia, like with you being in in the building, it just felt like Georgia was not ready for the intensity. I I, I always go back to defense, especially with McCall, with how good he is, how, how um, prepared I feel that UMass is 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 playing on the defensive end every single game. Do you think the energy caught Georgia off guard
1: in those first five to ten minutes? Because
0: it, it felt like that while I was watching it back. I think um,
1: that's today. I think that's an absolutely fair characterization, and I think remember Georgia was coming off an 11 day break, and I yeah. think I think that they just hadn't played another opponent in 11 days, and I think you, you kind of you kind of there was a there was a bit of a deer in the headlights thing going on, and then it was only compounded by the fact that UMass hit a couple, you know, frankly, like not great shots early, and it just like. So not only were they a little shook, but it, you, everything was going right for UMass on offense. Right, e- even after possessions would break down a bit, and I think it was 18-2 before you could blink an eye. Yeah, Jordan I
0: mean, was- couldn't hit anything. Like they, it, it just it just felt like you know, and and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but just it just felt like that UMass's pressure on defense led to the runouts and the karma that they got on the offensive end. And Georgia just wasn't ready for what UMass hit them with, uh, from a defensive pressure standpoint uh, on the defensive end, and they just they also couldn't get a shot to fall. But it was it was a it was a perfect storm almost for UMass because as you said, you know they're coming off an eleven day break. They obviously don't have a ton of rhythm, and they come into this environment where you know not even half the crowd is probably at the game at the beginning of the game we're, we're
1: going to talk about that too because because I mean literally like there was probably half the crowd there that uh, than there was at the eight minute mark of the first half I mean it yeah was like, I saw yeah. yeah I saw
0: I saw a tweet from uh a who you know showed about hundreds of UMass students trying to get in the game and the game was starting like basically at the same time but I just think it was it was almost a perfect storm for UMass where they' They're kind of on this roll. They beat Providence. Um, they're feeling good about themselves. Georgia's coming off of an eleven-day layoff, and all of a sudden, they're walking into this—you know, this 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 team that's feeling really good. McCall's clearly got them playing exceptionally well, and all of a sudden, you know, they're down eighteen to two, and it's it's like, wow, how did this happen? Um, obviously, UMass hit some crazy shots in the, in the beginning of that game, but. Um, it, it was just, it was a it, it, first of all, an unbelievable win for this program. Uh, I think people are are really on board with what's happening now, and especially on board with what Matt McCall is doing. But I, I just think the beginning of the beginning of that game, especially, was just like, you know, we're, we're catching, we're kind of catching this team a little bit off guard, but at the same time, like this is what McCall has been preaching since he got here: like def- defense first, get the stops,
1: the offense will take care of itself. So one of the things about McCall, you're you're right on everything. One of the things about McCall that I've heard him say, and I've heard other coaches say this, but I think McCall puts a particular emphasis on this, is that in the first half when the opponent is shooting at UMass's basket, right? Right, or, or is it UMass would it be yeah. UMass UMass's yeah. bench, really? Exactly. Yeah. McCall has the ability. Would that be our would that be our bench or our basket? Like, I mean it's our bench for sure, but
0: is it our basket? Uh, I guess you could technically say basket because that's what they shoot on in the second half. So
1: right. either way, yeah. So McCall has made a point of emphasis on the ability to coach up his guys when they're on that end. And so – and he's talked about, frankly, being concerned about that in this, at the this start of the second halves where it's harder to it, – it's literally harder to communicate because it's at the other end of the court and they can't hear you, particularly in road environments. Right. So – you know, you can see the active coaching where he's calling out certain switches and he's calling out certain rotations and he's anticipating things. And Mark Fox, you know, McCall beat him in his first, I think his first college win at Chattanooga was a win over Georgia. And Georgia and Florida are rivals. And Matt McCall obviously has a tremendous amount of experience, you know, both as a manager and an assistant at Florida. And, and, you know, Fox has been there like nine years now. So he's very familiar with what, what george does and frankly fox doesn't run anything terribly sophisticated at least from what i can tell and from you know over the years so you could you know McCall was so prepared for these guys out of the gate that i think it, it just as you said caught georgia off guard and before you knew it it was 16-2 at the fifteen-fifty-three mark i'm looking right now yeah and, you know, a couple, you know, a Carl Pierre three, a, a, a Pipkins three, a three-point play from, you know, and then another Pipkins three to take it to 16-2. And it was like, whoa, like, where did that come from? Then Georgia kind of gets back in it a little. They go on a, a you know, I mean, they, they take it, they get it to 18-7 after, you know, a, a three. And you're kind of like, okay, this, this is going to be a long afternoon. UMass played so absurdly well out of the gate that they can't keep this up. And there's kind of a minute there, you know, where I'm looking at the the breakdown here. Mc- McLean, you know, misses a layup. And we go back down the other end. You're thinking Georgia could cut it to single digits again. Yeah, uh, they don't. You uh, Baldwin kind of misses, misses a quick three. Once again, you know, Pierre commits a foul and you're like, and there's not much scoring for a little. So there's a little bit of a lull for about two or three. Really, basically. It's eighteen seven at the fourteen forty five mark, and there's not another bucket for either team until twelve twenty one. It was a really weird stretch of game where, for, uh, two and a half minutes there, they were just up and down with nobody making a shot, and and finally, um, finally, Pierre buries a three ball, and then next buried, time back to back, he buried back, back to back. Well, that's what I was saying. Next time yeah. down, buries one again to take it to twenty four seven. And that kind of took it out of that realm of like seesaw, whatever, and to from 11 to 17 really quick. And I think that was a really critical early turning point because at that point it's like you're down 17 with 1150 to go, and now you're on the defense of you know you're 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 really gonna have to claw back for a while, definitely. Um, And and you know they did they you know they clawed back a bit, so it it becomes 2413 at around the under eight UMass. This is an, uh Baldwin hits a big three. And then the other big, he had a that, bunch, he had a bunch of big, he hit a few big hit. threes. And then the yeah. other big moment that was weird and kind of like uh encapsulated this whole game in one anecdote was it felt a little like they were getting back in the game a bit. And then no, I guess it, I mean, it was like they were down like 19, so they really weren't, but Pierre takes this like crazy three. It was a rare, bad attempt. And it was way off. It was like back rimmed it. Go, it caroms upwards, and somehow a Georgia defender gets called in one of the more, more one of the most freakish calls I've seen in a college game ever. Gets called for uh, basket interference on the way down. I mean, the shot had zero, yeah. chance, zero chance of going in. Like, well, if that's going to go in, it's like there's no way we can lose this game until, of course, the second half when the Georgia the officials seemingly you know started recklessly trying to. Uh, make things interesting and it got very concerning for a second and then again got concerning towards the end of the game there was like two or three plays down the stretch where we were you know only up like 10 and cj um had like two or three turnovers and you kind of were like "Uh oh could this be byu all over again but to yeah. cj's credit he hit a big three uh i believe he had some foul shots and then the dagger was that unbelievable pipkins three where everyone in the gym every single person in the Mullen center knew he was going to shoot it he went through his leg what legs like what felt like eight times <laughs> step back dagger and it was just like holy shit this kid has some moxie and it was one of the best moments individual moments uh, of this season and it just encapsulated you know it, it, in addition to the freaky pierre three of the first half the brilliant play of pipkins to kind of secure the lead and say, I'm the guy, those in many ways symbolize, uh, you know, or are, are reflective of the the kind of narrative arc of the season more broadly, which is the emergence of role players who are doing stuff, a little bit of luck because we create our own luck on the defensive end. Uh, that's the three or three I'm referring to. And then the outright moxie of uh, really a first team, all 10, a 10 guy right now in Luan Pipkin's. And he's been it, unbelievable. It I mean, like, went to the hangar afterwards, uh, saw Allen, saw a ton of people, um, and uh, just a, a really good time to be a UMass fan right now. And that win is looking better and better, by the way. As right this very moment, it looks like it's gone almost final. Georgia with 114 to go is just laying the wood on uh, Georgia Tech up 80 to 57 now with 47 yeah. seconds. To go. Yeah, so. I mean, they came out they came bad out georgia mad team at all and umass just played really well and it all starts with our defense i mean you can talk about these offensive moments but the reality is the intense defensive pressure all the way through was the big factor in this one and last point that i just totally forgot about until i got on that little that little rant there was a moment in the probably midway through the second half where georgia was cutting the lead it was probably a 10 or Game and they called the timeout, and it was pretty clear they were going to try to write design a a quick hitter and kind of you know get things into single digits. McCall made an adjustment, real simple adjustment, where after playing man the whole way, two three, and Georgia was completely unprepared for it, took a bad shot, and U.S. went back down. I think it took it to like 12 or 13. And it's just those little things in a game where, particularly for a team that you know has blown a 10 point lead at once this year to a quality opponent. It's the little things like that that show that show tangible improvement in what you know. I guess you'd call winning time. And yes, we were up double figures. It's not quite the same thing, but the reality is, um, it could have gotten fairly close. And just those little that a move like that made sure it didn't. And that was super encouraging to see.
0: Yeah, he did that also against Providence. He went with a zone uh, for a couple minutes against against uh, a really good PC team. Um, well, I don't know if they're actually really good, but they're, you know,
1: a solid... Every a select, solid, opponent, for sure. Yeah,
0: exactly. He, and, and that's the type of thing McCall does, where it's like, coming out of a timeout, all of a sudden, he'll just switch it up. And it's it's it, all of a sudden, they're facing a 2-3, and it's kind of a matchup 2-3 that he plays. And it definitely you know, screws of the opponent's mindset, the offensive mindset where they're playing against man all game long and they all of a sudden have to switch to his own. And it's just one of those things where he, he he's done that a couple of times. I think it's been the third game where he just has felt a need to throw a little wrinkle in there on defense. And um, it's definitely put the opponent in, in a little bit of unrest uh, for, for a few minutes there. So um, granted, you know, I didn't – You know, I didn't see a ton of this game, but it's just it's it's one of those things where the defense is the staple of what McCall wants to do um, every single game. And it's it's showing up um, in a plethora of ways. It's been it's been amazing to watch.
1: Sure has. So let's talk uh, briefly, very briefly, because I'm going to be totally candid and let you know that I know very little about our opponents this week. And it's more about what we do. Uh, about this week's coming games, there are two games. There is tomorrow night or for many of you tonight, because let's be honest, you probably aren't going to get this podcast until Wednesday morning. Georgia State comes to the Mullen Center. I would say in many ways UMass's best win yes, last year was uh, that, that final non-conference finale game at Georgia State where we won on the road and played really well against a pretty good Georgia State team. Um I think we won by about nine and the guys just played really well. It was a good team. It was a road game. Uh it ended up being kind of a disaster because UMass had to come back and play Bonaventure two nights later, two days later uh to open conference play. And Bonna had like eight days to prepare for us. So that was brutal. But uh Georgia State, you know, has a decent recent decent recent history with uh Ron Hunter, I believe, is the coach. Uh he had that moment where he you know fell off of this scooter during the NCAA tournament a few years back that many people probably remember his son with believe was the star of the team and yeah RJ RJ Hunter yeah didn't they have a Kentucky transfer too did Wilcher end up there or
0: something no Wiltshire wasn't there but they might they may have had a, a big time transfer but RJ camp
1: yeah
0: RJ Hunter who had a brief stint with the Celtics was was the player that his son made made that big shot that um when Ron Hunter ended that up was what, uh, four, falling out of his 15? chair,
1: was that, was that 2015? I don't remember. 14 or 15?
0: 14, 15. I think it was 14. And oh, it was, oh, I think it, yeah, it was 15. And then he made a buzzer beater basically in the, in the NCAAs to – were like a 13 seed or a 12 seed. Um, and Ron Hunter fell off his,
1: his like walking scooter or his rolling scooter. Right, basically. right. So, you know, I mean, their Sunbelt team, they have played – uh, a fairly weak schedule, and not done, not won any noteworthy games. Their best win is probably over Tulane by eleven. But they've played some teams tough. They lost to Ole Miss by five. They actually just this past weekend um, went to Dayton, which is never an easy place to play, and lost in overtime by five. They were, you know, they were there all the way. Uh, you know, they don't have any noteworthy wins. They're seven and. Four but they've you know played some decent teams and they've taken care of business against um you know the teams they should it's a kind of game that you know umass had a week to prepare for their last game um and i think they're riding high a bit and i think now is the first time we're going to see okay how can they handle success they handled the lack of success really well and i think right we were were all super encouraged after they went to three and five uh, you know Frankly, after they went to three and four, they played a, a game that I kind of still consider a victory in some ways against South Carolina and then came home to take care of business against uh, Holy Cross and Providence and then, you know, had another week and proved that they were, you know, up to the task again with the win over Georgia. So now comes the question of how do they handle some success? They are a four and a half point favorite right now. Uh, I think that's probably about the right total, though. I, I think the money will probably come in on UMass just because of past two results. I think so. It, the reality is my one concern in this game is it's, it's not so much about, well, I am a little concerned about a lack of intensity. I think that they fed off the crowd this week for sure. And I think now students are gone. It's not as compelling of an opponent. You know, we'll see what the Mullen Center brings out on a Wednesday. So there is that concern. But also, look, the reality is, as well as UMass has played the last two games, they've been super good from three. And we've seen games where, you know, they aren't. And the reality is, again, I say it on every episode, so much of college basketball is about what you do with open looks. And UMass gets a lot of them because of the offense they play. There's just a lot of pick and pops. There's a lot of screens. Guys get open looks. The bottom line is you got to make them. And if you don't make them, you can lose to a team like Quinnipiac that has, you know, one or two wins all year and lost to our, uh, our Friday opponent, Maine. So, it's about UMass making shots, and then the one other thing I'm hoping is that Malik Malik Hines can bounce back on the offensive end. He really did basically nothing against Georgia after uh, a solid, you know, year, uh, you know, great year really, other than that game. So I'm looking for that, and I want to see the continued development of, of Holloway. I thought he was pretty pretty solid against Georgia. Did some annoying things in terms of picking up uh, some fouls there in that stretch in the first uh, second half. But if UMass can hit, you know, forty percent from three, I think they're fine. If they don't, Georgia State could stick around and st- and steal this game. I mean, I mean If they hit 30 percent from three, I think this, they win this
0: game. Uh, it's one of those. It's one of those games where they're clearly going to be the better, the the most talented team in the matchup. Um, if they go, you know, six for twenty from three, I, I think they win. I re- I really do. I just it's 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 one of those one of those type of games where Holloway should dominate. Um, he he. You know, put up some numbers against Georgia. He's looked a little bit better the last you know, week or so. Um, he's clearly going to be a defensive mismatch for, for Georgia State. Um, and it's, it's one of those games where I just think, it, as long as UMass doesn't go like two for 20 or two for 25 or whatever from three, I, I think they win. And, and the reason you know, that I'm optimistic is because Carl Pierre has been so damn good. I mean, th- this kid can shoot. He's got an unbelievable stroke. I mean, I said it in the last podcast, but every single time he shoots the ball, I think it's going to go in. Uh, Pipkins has been phenomenal. I think he'll probably be the best player on the floor for UMass. Um, and nothing, something to not overlook at all. That I, you know, I don't know if we've touched on on this podcast, but UMass is six and zero at home, and yeah, that absolutely. is that is quite
1: the contrast of what we saw with Derek Collag. Where- Actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little fact check. I hate to. Yeah, I don't I don't mean to. I don't mean to, you know, well, actually you, but no, go ahead. UMass is something like 38 and three in non-conference home games over the last four years.
0: That's, no, that's uh, legit.
1: Four or five years, actually. Kellogg, to his credit, pretty much without a fail, took care of business against bad teams at home. Now, you're absolutely right if you're pointing out that Kellogg did not necessarily steal games against quality opponents at home. I mean, I remember them getting drilled by Providence a couple of years ago. So in some of the more noteworthy games, that is 100% accurate. Um, and going back to the earlier parts of his tenure, it's even more accurate, but I will say that UMass typically has been good about beating who, they, you know, and, and you know, even last year they got that nice win over Temple early in the season. So, uh, and Dayton, Dayton too Dayton well, at that, home. yeah and that's conference where he wasn't always good but I'm right, that, well, I that's probably what I'm thinking of more yeah, yeah. is that
0: like the those a10 games so I yeah, I might be a little bit mistaken here but 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 beating Providence and Georgia at home back to back games neither of us probably thought they would win is a little bit you know that that's probably skewing my, my uh memory here of of how derek had performed against uh quality opponents at home
1: yeah which is totally totally legit i mean but yeah so I, I do think they 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 you know it's it look it's hard to win on the road in college basketball for a lot of different reasons primarily the fact that just you know it's the kids are weird kids you know they're young and travel stuff messes them up and you know it's a flight for georgia state they probably just right. finished with finals so Yes, you know, in many ways, I think on paper we we probably should be even more than a four and a half point favorite. But I still am not sold on us being good enough to play poorly or even mediocre and win a game uh, against seven and four team of any sort. I, I just don't think we're we're at that point. I think we have to continue playing really, really hard and yep. doing uh you know doing the right doing the right stuff. It's really cliche, but it, it's I mean, Georgia State has a kid, DeMarcus Simons, who averages uh, 21 and, um, you know, 21 and five. So they have some size. Um, you know, they have another kid, Malik Ben Levy, who goes for 12 and six. So um, we're definitely going to see them go right at us and try to get us in foul trouble yet again. You know, that's that's what everyone's doing. Um, yeah, a couple of and- really
0: good, well, here's the thing. Those two kids, I mean, they seem like, they, well, actually, I don't know who Simmons is, but Devin Mitchell and, and what you said, Malik Ben Ben Levy, they're shooting forty three and almost fifty percent from three, and they might be their only three point shooters on the whole team. But those are, those are the type of those are the type of the teams and players that can swing a game where it's like all of a sudden they get super hot from three, and it's just you know they maybe both of them go you know four for eight, and it's it's just a uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, type of run that you can't
1: withstand when two guys are, you know, two guys are hitting eight threes. Right. Um, and that's what I'm saying. I just don't think UMass is at the point yet where we can expect to, like, play, you know, meh and kind of take care of business. I mean, the kid, the kid, Simon's uh, the guard I'm talking about. Um, yeah, he, he's he's going for twenty one. Six and I and I think a bunch of assists too. I mean, Five, like he, four, four point six assists. A yeah, game. obviously so the two of us. He's are a player at their, at their player. roster right now, and I don't, you know, I don't want to pretend I'm an expert on the Georgia State roster. I'm, I'm not, but I, I it's pretty clear that they have some talent. In the team. I mean, he's only a, the kid's only a sophomore, and he runs like 6'3", 200 pounds, sturdy. You know, that's a tough matchup. <clears throat> I mean, I guess you throw C.J. Anderson at him, but we, we've, we, you know, I, that's been one of my concerns throughout the year. Is slightly bigger guards. Um we don't we don't really have I mean CJ's really the only guy who can step in and fill that slot. So look if UMass takes care of business, UMass will win the basketball game, but this is not anything I'm 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 not I I give us a sixty five percent chance of winning, but it's not hundred percent by any means. Yeah, I think and the fact that we're at home three two weeks ago I would have given yeah. us a forty five percent chance of winning.
0: I'm with you. Uh, I, I think Georgia state's a good program. That's, that's what it comes down to is that, you know, Ron Hunter can coach and he's shown that he can coach in the past. And, you know, I'm with you. I'm, I'm not any sort of expert on Georgia state's um, roster or how they are this year, but based on how we, how they played last year, they played really hard. I think what you said is absolutely spot on. It was one of UMass's best wins of the year. And Ron Hunter is a guy that's going to get this team prepared and they're going to, probably play UMass the right way defensively um, to, you know, they're, they're going to focus on Luan uh, Luan and, 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 and Rashawn. And it's just, you know, it's one of those games where you got to come prepared and and you made a great point, I think earlier with the fact there won't be any students there. It's a Wednesday night game. They're not going to have the type of crowd support they had for Georgia. It's not this like maroon pant uh, movement game where there's, there's a lot of momentum behind it. It's going to be, you know, it's it's going to be kind of a, a lackadaisical crowd. And UMass is going to have to show up regardless. And I think they can do it because I trust Matt McCall. Um, but Georgia State is a good team. And so they, they definitely can't come out in, in any sort of malaise after these couple of weeks. They think, you know, we're just better than everyone. Where, you know, they, they, they can't do that against a team like Georgia State, who's who's been in the tournament um, recently.
1: Speaking of malaise, I would say if there's one team you can have a little bit of a malaise against, it would be the University of Maine. They have struggled all year, and yet that game is on Friday at PM. So less than you know, unique start time because of the uh, pre-Christmas stuff. It's I don't really like that. I I, I'm working. I don't know who's. I guess some people get off before or get the day off. I'm bummed about that, just personally. Yeah, Maine, Maine has played a tough schedule. Uh, they lost to Fordham on the road by one. They they hung around with St. Joe's for a while. I think they were down like one or two at half, and they ended up losing by like twelve or thirteen. They played somebody else from the A10, reasonably tough. They beat Quinnipiac by six, but basically haven't really beat anyone else. Got drilled by Texas Tech. The only re- the reason I'm, per- I'm I'm like not concerned about that game is they play at Central Connecticut two days before too, so it's not like they're right. gonna have more time. And their coach Bob Walsh, and we were gonna have a guest on actually who played against him uh, at the D three level. Bob Walsh used to be the head coach of Rhode Island College D three school. That was a sort of is like a perennial Northeast power. He's a really good coach. He's been there three, four, maybe five years now. That is, as anyone with a brain can understand maybe the hardest place in the country to recruit talent, basketball talent. There's just no, why on earth would you want to play basketball? manage? I mean, it's just like, you don't. So he's obviously hamstrung by certain, you know, by those limitations. And Bob Walsh can really coach. He's a New England guy. He's going to be excited for this game. He's a guy that, you know, people in the past, I've, I've heard fringe his name thrown around, you know, as someone long, longer term. Maybe if he could get things ever going at Maine, could come to UMass someday. Yeah. Um, you know, so this guy's a guy who I think I think he's a Massachusetts native. He wants to impress. He'll probably have family at the game, but I ex- am and, and he's really well regarded in coaching circles. He's just in a really tough spot. But uh, the encouraging part is he's not going to have a week to prepare a game plan. He's going to be playing Central Connecticut State the night before. Uh, I believe they have a big break after this game too, as UMass does prior to the start of conference play. It's this is one of those games every year. It's a getaway game, and nobody wants to play it. It's right before the holidays. Guys' right. heads are elsewhere. It couldn't have been better scheduled in terms of if there's any team, even in this year when we thought we weren't going to be good, that you want to pl- that you want to play in that getaway game. It's Maine. That said, they did beat Quinnipiac. Uh, They went lights out from three in that game, which, you know, isn't I don't think it's terribly characteristic of them, but anything can happen. But I think this is the one game where UMass could have to not even play that well and still eke out a seven point win. And uh, that's why I'm I'm mostly locked in on the Georgia State game. I, I think it would be even this year pretty disastrous to lose to Maine. But the reality is, Cal and I said, and I talked about it last episode. We said in the first episode of this program, <laughs> I was just to, gonna, br- I was yeah. just
0: gonna bring this up.
1: I was to, literally just gonna bring this up to go seven and six in the conference. Would be quote the dream, the dream. And so even if we lose to Georgia State, I want people to maintain some perspective for and realize what we thought going into the year, and not and, and sort of adjust your expectations back to the the the, the preseason. And be thrilled even if they go one and one in these next two. And if you exceed the dream, I don't even know what you're eight and five, but I don't even know what the, you know, what, what, how you'd characterize that. So the reality is UMass is in a great spot right now. When they fell to three and five, I think we were all sort of, we weren't even concerned. I was just getting to the point where I said, okay, well, we kind of know what we're going to be now. And the reality is we bounced back and exceeded everyone's expectations one, three straight games, including two against really marquee opponents and the buzz around the program right now is really as, as strong as I've seen it since the the tournament year in 14.
0: Yeah. um, It's been, you know, a surprise to say the least. Uh, If, if, if this team is eight and five after the non conference, which, you know, I, they'd be, they are going to be favored in, in these last two games and they should be eight and five. It's, it's remarkable Um, the, the type of non-conference slate that they've played, it's a, it's been a tough one. Um, you know, we talked about this in the first podcast where it, it, this, this non-conference schedule was for Derek's last year and it was going to be a tough one. And they were going to have to, you know, really pressure, um, you know, DK to, to have a really good year. And then, you know, the, he, the, he gets fired and Matt McCall steps in and, uh, I just think that eight and five is a exceptional, exceptional non-conference with the slate that they faced. And hopefully we get there. And it's, it really, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this probably on the next pod next week um, in between Christmas and new year. But uh, it, it, it really resets the expectations for this team in the a 10, where you're looking at a team that, you know, could finish in the top eight and, and, or Could really and, and I, mean, I, I mean
1: I think a lot of people would say should finish in the top eight. I'm that, yeah, exactly I'm, I'm I'm stopping short of saying that, but I think right now if you look at what UMass has done, I mean the power rankings in the 8-10 talk site had you has UMass at fifth right now. I mean that's, and legitimate fifth. I mean they, they should they've played as well as the top five team in the league. Now it's obviously a down year, but yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing to see how this team is going to play now that they're actually uh the, the the perception of them has changed so much as well.
0: Yeah, and Sage, I, I mean, I don't know what your what your schedule is next week, but I'd I'd really love to just dive into the A ten because it is a down year. Um, there's a few teams that you could really look at, like a URI and a, and a Saint Bonnie that are, that's it, well, and that's really it. That's and it. that's it. And that's and that's kind of what I'm saying is that you know Duquesne's eight and three, but they haven't played anybody. Um, VCU seven and five, and they have played a tough schedule, and they they'll probably be you no know, VCU's always. Be a, good. Always a tough I think team. I think they're
1: they're three. I, I definitely yeah.
0: They're three. And, and I I really want to dive into this a little bit next next week because I'll, I'll I'm going to do a ton of research into the A10, but it's it's one of those it's a weird year because it, there just aren't a lot of great teams, and it's 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 surprising because I think the A10 has always had, you know, not just not a ton of t- tournament teams every year because they usually only get two to four in every year. But this is one of those years where they may not get, a, a, you know,
1: they may not even get, like, one or two NIT teams in. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think the A-10s had no less than three basically the last decade, maybe with the exception of one or two years where they had two. But, I mean, year UMass got in, there was five. Um, right. So this year you're looking at one pro- – pop- Probably too, if they take care of business, but they're a team. I mean, Richmond is awful. Awful. Uh, terrible. George, Fordham's, George, Fordham's terrible. Fordham's George, terrible. Yeah. George Mason has been a total, total disappointment. Um, you know, But But I do want to say, I mean, we're we'll, we'll going to do it next week, but it's not going to be. At, this is off on a bit of a tangent here, but it's not going to be. I do think some of these teams are going to start getting their shit together a little bit. And that yeah. the one thing is like, it's as if. There are basically eight or nine teams that should that are all the ninth or tenth best team in the A10. If that makes sense, there's a a, there's a one perfect sense to me because I think if
0: you go back if you go back three years, there's there's a bunch of teams that would have been the seventh to tenth best best team in the A10. And that granted, that's not a bad team, because if you play the seventh best team in the A-10 as the third or fourth best team in the A-10, you're going to you're it's going to be a battle. But I think there's what you just said There's eight or nine that are that are in that resume this year. And it's a very strange year for. for Right. I mean,
1: there's two good teams and then there's like two bad teams and then there's 10 teams that are kind of like, that should all be ninth or, you know, between eight and 10, but there's really no team that's emerged between, that has shown me that they're a four to eight team, you know? And so UMass has an opportunity to be, I don't want to say fourth, but. I mean, you don't know. Fourth would be it's, insane. Fourth would be insane. Would just be be insane. insane. <laughs> but it's like the way some of these teams are playing. But, you know, St. Joe's could get their shit together. And, and, and you know, I, I actually don't think Dayton is like really suspect. But St. Joe's could get their shit together. Georgia can get their shit together. Davidson is so well coached that they'll get their shit together. So there, right. there are things that'll happen. But we'll break that down next week. Yeah, I think next week's, a, it'll be good. I think, I think
0: we'll, we'll, we'll go full breakdown into the end next week.
1: It's time for Sam the Mailman, your UMass athletics mailbag updates. First of all, unrelated, real quickly, uh, shout out to the VCU fans out there. The Ramble On, who is uh, VCU podcast, is the handle. Uh, they took the initiative tonight to absolutely shit on Pat Kelsey, whose Winthrop team played at the stew, uh Zoo Center in, in Richmond.
0: <laughs> and yeah. so
1: he said, he said, "You guys dodged a bullet." Seriously heckled the heck out of him. He was so shook that down 10 with around a minute left, he calls a timeout and keeps having his players foul. Um, (laughs) So thank you to Ramble On, and that that probably is increasingly going to solidify him as our VCU guest later in the season. Yeah, Um, that's awesome. The great Garrett Russell, friend of the show, says, I fear I'm too late, but, and you're not too late, what type of effect do you think a pure point guard would have had on this team this year? We taking... Possibly three more. We're we talking possibly three more wins. Is that too many? So I've said on Twitter and I, probably on the show at some, like, you know, a few times that if Jalen Brantley, the Maryland transfer, who of course tragically could not play as a result of his heart condition, were playing, that this team has three more wins right now. Now, I don't know if it's three definitively it certainly is BYU that's a 100% a win because we didn't have a point guard down the stretch and we blew a 10 point lead that's a 100% a win even a marginally traditional point guard steps in and you, you you take that game by the way cal are you playing poker right now i feel like i hear chips no i'm
0: not um i keep hearing a vibration but i'm not i'm not playing poker no. now <laughs> that's, just the, that's just the energy coming from the end um, I, I wish i, I kind of wish i was a little i I'm, I'm more of a
1: blackjack guy but no, I'm not okay. playing poker. <laughs> yeah, blackjack is my friend. Poker, I totally agree. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm team blackjack. So, uh, Garrett. So, so okay. So, I definitely think that's a win. The South Carolina game is hard to say because the reality was we got so screwed by the officials. It was 28-12 and falcon play so badly in terms of turning the ball over down the stretch that we may lose that game anyway just because of the bullshit situation. So, I'm not going to say an automatic win. The Harvard game, both teams played really well. And, and Pipkin's but, played so damn well in that Pipkins game, too. played so well that, like, I think it was a legit Harvard win. And then there's no doubt that we win the Quinnipiac game with right. Jalen Brantley, like, a bazillion times out of a bazillion. we probably win that game without Jalen Brantley nine times out of ten. So that's yeah. two. And then we don't win against Minnesota. So definitely two more wins. This team is no doubt. Nine and three. Uh so no, that would be what? Eight. No, nine eight and, and no. three. Eight and three. and yeah, eight, eight, eight and three. three eight so they're no doubt eight and three with a chance of nine and two if he's there. Um some would say, you know, chance of ten and one, but you don't you're not gonna win every game. But definitely, right. definitely two of them, and you're definitely eight and three. It's a bummer. It is what it is, but you know, you can't do anything about it now. So Hold like on, can, I, can we go ahead, yeah.
0: I, I don't wanna I just don't wanna discount how good Luan Pivkins has been this year because he, like, he's not the pure point guard that you look at as a guy who's going to control pace and dish the ball off. He's going to you know, break down on defense and dish the ball off the right guy every single time. But he's so he's been done such an exceptional job, and it, and and you could argue that if I mean and, and reasonably argue that if if Brantley was here. And you played Luan off the ball where he was coming off dribble handoffs or he was coming off, you know, pick and rolls off of Brantley kick, uh, you know, kickouts that he would be just as effective. But I just don't I don't want to get into this thing where, you know, we discount how good Luan has been as the point guard of this
1: team because he's you you consider the point guard of this team. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, CJ dribbles the ball at the court a lot and, and facilitates I, the
0: offense. I haven't, I don't know if I've touched on this a lot, uh, but it's been, you know, since the BYU game, it's, it's probably something I should have talked about. But I think, you know, if, if there's one game you can look at as a game where McCall really screwed up, it was having CJ handle the ball as much as he did at, in that BYU Against, game. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Because, because I just don't think at the end of games, you can have a guy who's just that loose with his dribble
1: bring the ball up every time, especially against a And I mean, there was a stretch in the Georgia game where he made like three straight turnovers and they cut right. it to like 10, and I was freaking the fuck out. Like That's I what I mean. It was like CJ in late-game situations, and it was like a gif, and it was like a guy screaming. That To his credit, I want to say, by the way, CJ finished the game. So like, Somehow CJ like will frustrate the shit out of you, and then you'll look at the sat line and be like, 12-7-7, seven and, seven and you're like, yeah. okay, I'm, I'm kind of an asshole. No, he was, like, this kid is getting it done somehow. <laughs>
0: CJ's been amazing. I mean, he's been really, really good. He was 10-8-7, but, but that's what I mean. Just, I just think – and I almost – listen, there was a game uh, – God, it was against Providence. I was watching the whole Providence game, and there was – at the end of the game, I don't really know why this happens, but – for some reason, it the ball kind of ends up in CJ Anderson's hands with under two to three minutes left, and he's bringing and he the ball too up, fast, and, and he's, like, yeah. he loses and it. Yeah, I just I almost tweeted this in the Providence game. I didn't do it because they had the game in hand, and it was like I, I didn't want to be the asshole who is you know We're calling up on the parade, yeah, right. It, because it, but it just it's one of the things where just put the ball in the hands because he can he can handle pressure. He, he's going to be, even if he, even if he gets trapped, I have more faith in Luan to make the right pass than I do CJ. And it, it's, it's, it's kind of driving me crazy. I didn't see the end of the George game. So if what you're saying is, is correct, which I don't doubt at all because this has been the kind of MO for this whole team the, the whole year is that CJ takes the ball with, with two to three minutes left. It's like, what are you doing? Like, uh, Lauren Pipkins is the best ball hitter on your team. I don't care if he can make a crazy decision every once in a while; like he's yeah. gonna be able to beat the press. And it's you know, I hope, I, I pray as we get into a ten play that this doesn't happen because I think CJ will CJ will get eaten alive, and he's a really, really good player. It's just not his
1: role to beat a press; like he, he's just not 100%. that type. Of, and by the way, like, weirdly enough, I actually think in in, in certain moments. Ray Miller has actually been like, I, I wouldn't mind throwing him on the floor in those instances um, to help handle the ball. Like in a late game stretch, I actually, if, if you have a lead and you don't need Carl Pierre's strength. right, right. I'm okay with Miller being on the floor as a third ball handler. Cause he's probably a better ball handler than, than Pierre is in, in terms of breaking a press. Totally agree. Um, totally agree with you. I so think I'm, I'm okay with him in those spots. And, and the other thing I want to say about point guards with with uh, with respect to Jalen Brantley and all that is that next year, even though Trey Wood is kind of a pure point guard, McCall has been pretty open, and anyone you talk to who follows his career has been pretty open that McCall believes in having three really strong ball handlers on the court, and therefore yep. not really needing sort of that prototypical distributor you know like a darren williams type if you think of like you know those those kind you know that type of a point guard who's really the sole guy dictating tempo or uh, i mean i guess who was the kid on unc a couple years ago like a kendall marshall or whatever yeah um you know he he doesn't need that in his system so you know next year with clergio and pipkins off the ball those are guys are kind of they have point guard like elements to their game and that they're quick and they can, you know, penetrate and dribble, you know, uh, quite well, despite being, you know, not like a six, four, you know, point, uh, you know, Pierre style player. So it's, it's worth noting that even next year, it's not like there's godsend, you know, traditional point guard who just handles the ball, you know, 70% of the time in late game situations, but there'll be three or four guys who can, who are adept at handling the ball and that will in in its own right compensate for um, the lack of sort of that one ball handler. Whereas this year, yes, you have Pipkins, but when you make him be the one guy, you, you, you only have one, right? There's, there's not a secondary really right. solid ball handler that you want to have the ball in a late game situation. And that allows defenses to swarm Pip a little, you know, you see, even little ones you saw with in the first half of that South Carolina game where they struggled to break the press and they went down early. And then, even like the zone, those sort of weird zone that Holy Cross went to. There, there are moments throughout the year where, when Pip is the lone ball handler, it, it makes things a little trickier for us, and it's part of the reason why we, why I think McCall continues to try to get runouts. And you, know, you saw that with the Carl Pierre threes. He wants to sort of avoid being in that situation in the first place. But late in games, when you're up eight or nine, which you know we've been up a couple of times, there is that anxiety about okay, who can control? Who the hell's, who the hell's yeah,
0: one, the, yeah, yeah, two two. Two quick things. I think McCall takes after the Brad Stevens, and I'm a, I'm a huge Celtics fan, so I'll, I'll probably make weird Brad Stevens references all year. But um, he kind of takes after that based on like what I've listened to him in his press conferences, and I try to watch literally every press conference because I think they're so brilliant. And he's he's weirdly honest, like in his press conferences. It's it's so refreshing. But he almost looks at the court as if it's not point guard shooting guard small forward power forward center he looks at it as guards and ball handlers wings and then bigs and that's the way he looks at it and i think with with the team that's coming in next year you can almost see how he's envisioning this this the program to to operate on the offensive end where you know, you got you got Clairgo, you got Trey Wood, and you got Pipkins, and I think all three of those guys could play at the same time next year. I I really believe. And those that are that's, your
1: guards, whereas whereas like Diallo and um, Pierre are your wings, so
0: you right? Say. Exactly, exactly. And it's like one of those things where it wouldn't shock me if we saw a, f- a five, if if those five guys were on the court at the same time, because and and all of a sudden you just big, which you know you'd have to get over at some point, but. You know, it's one of those things where he doesn't look at the at, at, at certain positions. He just looks at it as you know, this guy can handle the ball, and if he has to give it up at any point, and we have to go to another guy who can go through a pick and roll, then yeah,
1: then trade. A would combination of skill sets, yeah, totally, Ex- exactly. And, and I mean, that, that I think will really be compelling against kind of a weaker non-conference competition where you can where they're not where they don't have the size, and you can right. use. Or, or frankly, the kid Jonathan Laurent, the transfer from Rutgers, who's kind of yep. like a do everything length length guy who can also uh, you know bang and get rebounds. And look, Pierre can rebound too. He's, he's got great length. So yeah, I mean, I would not be surprised if we just smother the shit out of teams with the press with a lineup like that. Totally. Um, but yeah, let's go to the next question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, all right, let's see what we got here. Mike Locapo, M. Locapo on Twitter says. How many pairs of maroon pants have you purchased in the past week? Just one, Mike. Just one. (laughs) They're a nice pair of pants. I'm not going to lie. And by the way, they did a really nice job with the maroon pant thing. I think 530 people did it. Uh, I gave a modest donation of more than I had said I would to Alan Pandiani at the hangar after the game with numerous people as my witness, just pointing that out. Um, (laughs) And uh, one, and I'll continue to wear them, frankly, I plan on wearing them. Maybe at every, certainly at every weekend UMass game that I go to. I think it's just a fun thing to do. It's kind of a cool tradition. And, um, where'd you, hey, Sage, Sage, where'd you buy them from? I got them from The Gap. They were a nice pair of pants. I paid like 30, 35 bucks. And I worked one day this last week, too. I mean, they're a nice pair of pants.
0: Yeah. No, they're great. I, I actually, you know, I, I said this in the last pod, but I, I have a pair of maroon pants that I didn't even think that would come into uh, the rotation anymore. Um, but yeah, I have. I think they're also the gap. So um, I was uh, unfortunately not able to make it, but I will one. You know, my schedule has been freaking nuts the last couple of weeks. But after the holidays, I'm going to slow down a lot, and I plan on making it to at least two to four games out at Amherst. And uh, I, yeah, will I'm wearing, I'm I will wearing, be wearing. I will be wearing maroon pants that. every game. Definitely I'll be wearing yeah, I just want to hear something sad. Yeah. So go, got go ahead. I my pants online. They got in on Sunday morning. I was so excited. They didn't fit.
1: No. Uh, okay. I thought you were, were going to say they, they were I was so excited I wore them Sunday. That would have been chill. <laughs> yeah. That would've been Saturday. good.
0: Not chat. Yeah. No. Uh No, they did not fit, which which hurt hurt a lot.
1: That's right. brutal. Next question is a good one. From Stu Ludicky S Ludicky 93 Apparently, he's in W. He did not come over and introduce himself. I would have loved if he had done that on, on Saturday. Stew. Stewie. Stugatz. Um, Stugatz. Um so he says, uh, asked earlier, but why not? Three MVPs in order to date. All right. That's a great question. Wow. Because it, what it forced me to do is pull up the stats a little. And it forced me to really. Okay. Obviously, the number one is, I think. There's, that's a consensus pick and anyone who says otherwise is just being preposterous thewan Pipkins at 18.7 a game yeah he's only shooting 43 percent but he has doesn't to. matter doesn't it matter. doesn't matter right and so I feel like he like takes random half court shots at every game and like that counts against the shooting percentage but uh,
0: <laughs> it, I, that, that actually is like a real thing like he,
1: all of a sudden, like your your your
0: three point percentage goes from like forty one to thirty nine because you take yeah like or, three three half court like half like time shots. The
1: only guy who like late in, there's been a lot of instances this year where the shot clock kind of winds down. You're like, oh, we got to do something, and we don't quite run the set we wanted to, and the guys are like, it's probably something McCall is wanting to work on. Yeah, but because uh, I think if it happens particularly when we fail to get the ball into the paint initially. And then we're just kind of like it's a little Kellogg-esque at times. But yeah. I, I feel like he's the only guy who can then kind of create his own shot. So he just has to break it down and take a tough shot. Uh so that's not on him. MVP number two. This is where it gets so so I'm gonna I'm gonna There's the like can, four there's like four candidates here. The candidates here are clear. The candidates are well, maybe they're not clear. The candidates are um the candidates are Carl Pierre, and I think the temptation is to quickly go to Pierre as your number two, particularly because he's been so strong in the last two games and he hit some notably big shots. But C.J. Anderson is not so – I mean, he's quietly averaging 9.5 a game. He's averaging uh, a good amount of rebounds too. I'm, I'm looking right now. He's averaging he, he's the leading boards. He's the leading assist guy on the team. And he's a leading assist guy at uh, five assists. So he's going for 9.5, five and five, 5.3 and 5.3. Those are really good numbers. And yet he also has the more high, most sort of what feels like the most high-profile frustrating moments. And so I think there's this temptation to sort of say like, but now that I think about it, he had – Two rough games in Brooklyn and then a great bounce back game against Quinnipiac and it's basically been really solid ever since. Yeah. So you take away that kind of down the stretch frustration against BYU and then maybe a couple turnovers in a critical in a semi critical spot against Georgia where I like had a semi freakout. And he's had a great year. I mean He's got a 1.76 to 1 turn, you know, turnover ratio, which is pretty solid for a guy who isn't a pure point guard and is kind of historically played in a kind of trailer style role. Yeah. Um okay, other uh, Hold on, I'll be Go honest. Uh, let me comment on this for a second.
0: 2 years ago, uh, I I'll, I'll just throw my hands up and just say this is this is who I am. I was on UMazhoops.com. I wrote like a legitimate 1000 Word post about how much I hated CG. <laughs> and I you know, listen, he I thought I did not think that he was a division one basketball player. I I truly didn't. And I use advanced advanced stats through the his on off, uh
1: plus uh, minus because on, I on off plus minus Kellogg would yeah. play him fucking 20 minutes and Jabari yeah. Hines would be sitting on the bench just oh. twiddling his thumbs. Jesus. And and like what for whatever reason Kellogg had that really quick leash for, for Heinz. Yeah. And would play twenty minutes for CJ and he routinely, routinely have like twenty two minutes, one point. You're, you know, didn't get a shot off. <laughs> it was like he wasn't even there.
0: You're giving you're giving me PTSD right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so honestly, it was I, just that I, you wanted Heinz in. Yeah. Yeah. No, really, that, that was all it was. it was. like I just and, I took, and I took my anger out on CJ, the freshman. Right. Right, I, it was driving me nuts, and this was even like I think I wrote this post after his sophomore year. See, it's like his on-off stats were so bad after his sophomore year. But it, I'm I'm not gonna. I don't want to dwell on that. I just want to let everybody know that I was I, I I was never really a CJ Anderson fan. I, I I really wasn't. He's been fantastic this year. He had two horrible, really really bad games in Brooklyn. Other than that, I you you don't get to overtime against Harvard without CJ Anderson. I know,
1: just thinking that he was getting in the lane with he was
0: phenomenal. He was phenomenal in that Harvard game. He he was really really good, even in the BYU game where like he, you know, at the end of the game like he
1: turned the ball over, but in the first half he was really good. No, no, BYU was the one he sucked in. Right. Oh, you're but right. You're right. right. I'm sorry. But I'm just, I guess when it's yeah, game where you had 23 points.
0: Yes. And so I guess my point is that like, yeah, except those two games, but I guess my point is that like CJ is, he's been a much better basketball player than I ever thought he would ever turn into. And he's a great um, kid by all accounts. He's yeah. A really and that's, dude. that's, that's another thing. And it's, I'm really happy for him because I was, I was, an, I was, I was, you know, anti CJ for uh, two for his first full two years um, as a US basketball player, and so I'm happy for him. I think he's he's I think he's my number two MVP uh, after Luan, and I would put Carl Pierre at number three. All right, I'm um, just still to, just go. answer that question.
1: With sentiment sentimentality about CJ aside, and I'm going to totally Holy Cross stats because that was a game I missed like a part of. Ten points on one of four shooting. <laughs> That's okay. absurd. Nine rebounds. Five assists. Um, I mean the guy's been getting it done. Like, but he had
0: 10 points, he had 10 points on five shots against I mean, he's gets he gets to the line, which I never
1: thought, I never thought CJ Anderson yeah. would be able to get to the line. I now, I never thought he'd be able to do it. Sentimentality aside, I'm still saying Carl Pierre is my number two because it's not that his stats are, are through the roof, although of late they're they're kind of getting there. It's that this is a kid who gives us a dimension we just haven't had and i think i'm probably almost being you know too favorable because i'm so traumatized from not having that dimension in the last several years that just having a shot maker helps open the floor up like i i think in many ways without carl pierre you don't have the same CJ Anderson because the lane the movement he the, the ability he has to get in and kind of slither in the paint, that's getting there's a bottleneck under Kellogg that there yeah. is when there's a Carl Pierre. And frankly, when he shovels it out to Carl Pierre, who buries a corner three, that helps CJ stats too. So um that dimension he's given, the 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 and also his complete ability to not make dumb mistakes basically ever it, it it's like yeah his numbers aren't through the roof right now he's averaging 8.8 um but it, anytime he's on the floor you just feel comfortable like there was a, a stretch where Rayshon Miller was on the floor early against Georgia even early I was like just just put see just put Pierre and just just give me Pierre just give me Pierre you know it's like I just need him to get in now like you feel sort of like as a fan there's much less of that Kind of anxiety that, that that agita that sometimes defines a UMass fan when CJ's on the floor. And for that reason, he is my number two. And my number three, frankly, is probably a tie. I know that's maybe a cop out between CJ Anderson and Malik Hines. Malik Hines leads us in rebounding. Take away that one game where he did nothing against, um, Against Georgia this past game, he's at seven and six point four, but he's been so solid defensively, and he's been able to stay on the floor. Long- Holloway, you know, you could make a case, especially because he's gotten better of late, that Holloway should be in that top three. But this is a reality: is expectations matter? Yeah, and- no, I yeah, I can't do it. I can't do it. And the expectations we had for you know him are are different. And I, and I want to say. This is a question we should touch uh, at the two thirds mark of the season too. agreed. Kind of, agreed. Kind of after after twenty twenty one games, because Holloway in the last two games has shown that he's very much getting back to being you know as as close as to even he could be number two after twenty games. I, I don't know. If, I don't see Pipkins being overtaken, but I, I could easily be number two. But I'm I'm going to say if I have to go three, I'm going CJ. Number three. And it's also the reality that we were so concerned about guard play with this team that to have three guards who are all between, you know, basically nine and 19 points has been the difference this year. And the the ability to to hit threes among really uh, all of them has been the reason that this team is, you know, a big reason that this team is six and five and not, you know, three and eight. Agreed. So wait, your three are so if you had to pick three, you're saying this the three guards, but you're just flipping the CJ and Pierre? Yeah, I think CJ's my number two. I just think he's been
0: he's been that good, in my opinion. Uh, he's his ability to just control um the offense when it's not a tight situation is huge. And I think he's been incredible on defense.
1: Cal, are you packing a lip right now? Yeah, I am. Can you can you tell? That's that. I got a sixth sense. Um, <laughs> no, I just fucking heard. Um, so that's that's terrific. By the way, what are you? You're not a skull guy though, right? You're like no nah, like grisman gris grisman all day. That's some real masculine shit. I mean, I'll, I'll throw a skull day, <laughs> but you gotta be like a fucking alpha, be uh, to be, a, to be a, a grizzly man. I don't even if, know it, just if like the branding. If my know. if
0: if my girlfriend listens to this, she's gonna she's gonna
1: hate me right. <laughs> Wait, Grizzly Man, what does it even taste like? Like, skull is like, it's the same kinda, thing. Oh, it's, it's the same, right, it's sorry. the same, it's honestly oh, the same thing. Right. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest, I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, and I believe that chewing tobacco looks fucking cool as shit. So, when I played high school, I used to throw like really small ones in. Sometimes I even yeah. pinch it and put it in with a little um, piece of bubble gum and throw it in. And that, just, that, that's the way to do it, man. And, and, just like, and then you barely High school you know, baseball, that's what You, you did. barely taste it and 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 yet like it looked fucking badass. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the mouth cancer notwithstanding. Um <laughs> so so um Alex Silva, Marshmont 63, great friend of the show, and a Boston College senior who's a diehard UMass fan. Get a load of that. Says, not a question, but it needs to be said. I love Carl Pierre. Can't wait to see his development already so good. Had to get that out there. I don't even need to comment on this. I couldn't agree more. Um, But Eli Sloven, Sloves, who I got to meet this weekend, great dude. I believe he's at Amherst High School. He's very mature on, on the tweets. He says, yeah, wow, I did not know that. How often do you think the maroon pants should be broken out? And I basically addressed this. I basically said, uh, I'm going to rock them at any UMass game of real significance. Put it that way. I might not wear them for Niagara, but I'll wear any conference game. Uh, I'm of the
0: belief that if this is a if this becomes a real thing, and I, I've been skeptical of this whole movement um, since it started, and I this is kind of with the way my brain works is that like this could be super awesome or super lame, but it's one of those things where I think the students, if they get really into this team and it's like, it, you know, maybe not this year, but next year, it's one of those things where it's like all of a sudden the maroon pant movement is like a student section type of thing that half the students are wearing maroon pants. And it's like, it's, it's an awesome thing. And it's, it's taking off. And, and that's, that's my ideal for this is like all of a sudden ESPN when UMass is doing well in the next year or two, is there, and it's like a, it's like a thing that you that ESPN focuses on. It's like, oh, this is what you know. We come to Amherst, and everyone's wearing maroon pants, and it all started because McCall, you know, looks who, great. Who, by uh, the
1: way, didn't wear maroon pants this week? I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Why? Like, what is that? Well, about? I'm going to say this, and let's wrap the show up on this. But my last thought is this, and sorry for the folks' questions we didn't get to. We'll try to get them next time. Um, my thing with that is, if he had lost the game. I would have been like yo for real he didn't wear maroon pants cuz he's like I couldn't kinda, believe it cuz McCall is so good but he's kind of he's I don't want to call him a hardo but he's a very serious guy I mean he takes his craft immensely seriously which I love by the he's, way He's he is he is such a clone of Billy Donovan it's not even funny He's so serious about what he's doing and so I mean in a sense he, he's he's got a he's not like an asshole by any means he's just not like a he's not so the point is Winning a game when you don't wear the thing that inspired the fans gives you almost more of a mystique because it's like this guy's just locked in on the X's and O's, like he's not messing around. Now, losing, then it's kind of like, really, dude, like you're a first year coach, and like we just wanted you to wear a certain color of pants, like everybody else did it. It raised money. You gotta be, (laughs) you gotta be, you you know, it's like, how hard was it, dude? The the, the chancellor, the chancellor. Some of was you know, wearing more pants. Right, right, yeah. right. The president of the school, you know, the chancellor of the school does it, and the coach won't even do it because he's that locked in on the game. Like, you know what I mean? Like I it's, I, it's, I, it's I, a narrative I, that, I, that, 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 it. that that kind of respected. I kinda respect it. Kind of, that's kind of badass, but it, if, yeah. if it was a loss, it would have been like, Come on, dude, you're new here. Like you inspired something, now go with it. So yeah. hold on. Uh, can like, I can I can yeah. I do one one quick question that we got from
0: your boy um distracted diner? Yeah, yeah, my man.
1: Grew so he said
0: And I'm going to read both his tweets. He said, uh, this is more for me, A. Calgi, but your best UMass-related Christmas memories, sports or otherwise. And then he followed that up with an amazing tweet. He says, me and my friends once illegally cut down a pine tree from the forest near Mount Holyoke and taped it to our floor on our north apartment and decorated it with beer cans, period. It was deemed a fire hazard within 48 hours. Still worth it. And I just want to follow that up with the fact that me and my friends, when we lived off of campus our junior year, we once stole, and this is going off of uh, the best Christmas memory, we once stole a, um, you know, one of those blow-up Santa things that people are doing yeah. right now? Oh, yeah, yeah we, we, we we literally stole that off of some one of our like neighbors from like oh, 300 yards down from our apartment. We stole it out of their front lawn. And we took it into our apartment and blew it up and had it in our kitchen for about way longer than Christmas should have lasted. Um, it was probably, you know, we could have been arrested for theft, but it's one of those things you do. Was when this you're... like
1: a student house or like a uh, person's house?
0: Uh, no, this was definitely probably a real person's house that we stole it from. They were probably very disappointed the next day when they woke up and saw that their Santa was removed from their front lawn. Um, I'm not, you know, as a 28-year-old, I can't say I'm proud of what we did. But when we were walking back from the bars that night, we thought it would have been an absolutely hilarious thing to plug a blown-up Santa into our kitchen so that when we had our Christmas party two days later, it was just, you know, when everyone walked into our kitchen, there was just a Santa, you know, eight feet tall that was blown up in our kitchen so um that's a good look yeah not not maybe not you know as we look back on it um not my proudest moment but in the in in the moment when we did it 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 felt it was it was not just a good good idea it was like the best idea we've ever had the the
1: adolescent (laughs) the adolescent brain isn't isn't completely developed until 25 which when you start think when you when you start pondering that first of all it makes a lot of when you think of the shit college kids do, and second yeah. of all, it makes you realize like what a monstrous idea it is to allow twenty five thousand human beings between the ages of eighteen and twenty three to congregate in small areas. Now, that question obviously was a little hard for me because I didn't go to UMass, and it would make me a little depressed, and also made me have to interrogate my own uh, obsession with a basketball team at a school I didn't attend. You know, which is always you know forces me to kind of reconcile just what's wrong with me but i mean I, and I have i have lots of stories from college and shit i and shit like that i did but umass wise in terms of winter memories to keep it you know relevant to this audience yeah go ahead in i believe it was the year after the final four year, so 96 97 there's a famous game which was known as the, the blackout game was there umass was playing wyoming and the lights of the center went completely out during a snowstorm and they had wow. to finish. They had to actually finish the game. It was early in the second half. They had to finish the game the next day, a Saturday morning. I didn't go, or a Sunday morning, uh, because the game was, there was still like 16 minutes to go. And I remember seeing the highlights because I go back to the Mullins for it. And like it was, you know, a year when every every game was sold out and there was like 15 people at the game. It was like completely dead. Wait, and- who, who was it against? Wyoming. Oh, my and, God. And um, what I remember about the game was, uh leaving the game my dad and i were parked up by the Hagus mall and we were driving which i guess we we parked there back then i don't know so oh, i driving. oh that's where I, that's where i park every time i go to the game is it okay. Mall? yeah so we're driving out and um we're going i guess whatever that road is like before you would take a right onto this road where the mall and center is yeah so what road is that like not university drive but Whatever. No, I think it's. I think it is University Drive. No, University drive. drive is like where the football stadium is, was where McGurk is, right? Yeah, it's not North Pleasant, and it's not. No, I'm talking University. like you, like you'd have like the cage would be like on your left. Yeah, you know, the cage be on your right. The cage would be on your right. And damn left. dude, this is this is making me feel so old that I don't know what this road is. Right? Now. What the hell is in that road anyway? So we're going down that road, and like we start getting. Absolutely lit up with snowballs, like, (laughs) like, and I'm talking like it's like that wet snow where it's like you don't necessarily think the window's gonna break, but you're like, we are getting like we. I felt like I was getting, I was in a war zone. It was like, (laughs) and I remember I was like ten or eleven, and my dad was just like, I mean, like he wasn't, he was pissed, but it wasn't even pissed like the old man, like angry at kids. Was like, right, hey, right. guys, like, you're going to get us killed here because I can't see. And then <laughs> I think I later learned that, like, I, I heard, or maybe this is just like a mythology. Somebody make me feel better about getting fucking attacked by the Cal, the, the Andrew Calligy's of the mid 90s. <laughs> um, was that there was an annual snowball fight, and somebody, some of our good listeners could probably tell us that this is a true thing. An annual and fairly like well organized snowball fight between Amherst College kids and UMass kids during the first snowfall. That's yeah. a. I don't know if that's a true tradition, but that was the story I was told, and that we basically were caught in the crossfire. We were the collateral, you know, we were the collateral damage of a fight between Amherst and UMass kids, and uh, that's my winter memory at
0: UMass. That's University. amazing. I, that 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 tradition did not live on um, when I was there, which I, I wish it did. Um, just to clarify for everyone who thinks we're just not diehard UMass fans, the road that we're you're talking about is actually called Massachusetts Avenue. Right, um, right. Okay. And I, it, it was driving me nuts, and I actually had to look because I could not believe I couldn't remember it. Got it. All <laughs> yeah. right. Let's call it an episode. This this show's over. Yeah, that's that's good enough. We love y'all. Thanks for listening. Peace. Rate, subscribe on Apple and iTunes. Send um, money. If you want to send some money, send some money. Appreciate it, boys and girls.